to Changing the Sales Game on webtalkradio.net. I'm your host, Connie Whitman. As always, thanks for joining us today. Now, I hope every week as you tune into the show that you feel my passion and my mission to change that word sales, right? That icky, sleazy manipulation. We have to kick it to the curb and we have to approach sales from this place of love, compassion, care, and respect. And probably respect is the biggest word for me. To help you on this mindset shift, again, to get out of, get of, get out of our own head and really get into the game here, I have a free gift for you. If you in the show notes, you'll see a link for my free communication style assessment. You'll get two reports, one showing your superpower, and really it's going to discern and give you some uh, information as to how people are perceiving you and your messaging. The flip side, you'll also get a report with your lowest style, typically our blind spot, and that report will shine a light to help hopefully help you navigate those that communicate uh, very differently than you. So again, link is in the show notes. Please jump in, take it, and I hope it helps you move the needle on that mindset shift. Now, my motivational quote to set the table for my conversation with my guest today is by Johann Wolfgang von Goeth, and I hope I said his name correctly. The quote says, treat people as if they were what they ought to be, and you help them become what they are capable of becoming. Now, recently, I had a conversation with my oldest son, soon to be 26, about what, what is a good and what does a bad boss look like? And I think that on both sides, there's so much to learn from. I also shared with him that in my 20-year corporate career, before I started my business 21 years ago, I had one amazing boss and I had six really, really bad bosses. Now, notice I used the word boss. I should have said a leader uh, for the good one, right? Um, Mike Feeks was a leader and he led with greatness. The six bosses were bosses because they thought they were right. They thought they had all the answers and they really weren't very good at communicating. Now, I believe that bosses think, think they are right because they're the boss, right? End of story. While leaders seek others' opinions to hopefully gain greater perspective on whatever the situation, the organizational culture, whatever's happening right at that organizational level. It starts with the leader at the top and absolutely works its way down. So if you have good leadership, um, then what happens is that organizational culture, it, it trickles down. And then the people at the bottom hopefully can execute at a better or higher level of leading. Well, today my guest is a New Zealander by birth, and his name is Hamish Thompson. Hamish is a seasoned global leadership executive, and in a 30-year career, he's younger than me, he has been a successful CEO, regional president, and global brand head for Mars Incorporated, um, a senior marketing and sales lead uh, leader for Reebok International, and a fresh-faced account executive in the London advertising scene, a startup advisor and investor, board director, keynote speaker, and he is also the author of the widely published international business book called It's Not Always Right to Be Right. And it's an autobiographical account of leadership and personal lessons relating to breakthrough uh, breakthrough and transformation. He currently resides in Sydney, Australia with his wife and three children. Please help me welcome Hamish to the show. So Hamish, thank you so much for being on. Hey, lovely to be with you, Connie, and thank you for the introduction. Yeah, so... Holy smokes, you've done a lot. Yeah, listen, I, um, I, I've had an enjoyable career. Probably around two years ago, I almost 
I've done a 30-year corporate career, and uh, I'm an individual. I just like new, different, what's around the corner, and I get bored very easily. I've got this thing called constant dissatisfaction, even when things are going well. So two years ago, I made a, uh, a bold move, which uh, my bosses within Mars and also my wife uh, thought it was a crazy move, but I resigned out of the corporate world. Uh, started up down some of them all the startup private equity got into this little bit of publishing within that so uh, it's been enjoyable but as long as you're pushing and thriving uh, sort of through I think it's key hey I'm um, just quickly whilst I, remember, I loved your introduction that you talked around remove the word sales and I've always thought a sales leader the most exceptional sales leader is the business leader first and a functional leader second. It's a really difficult mindset to get your head around, but um, I, uh, I resonated directly when you said that. Yeah, and you know, growing up in sales, uh, I've been in sales for 40 years. And when I started, talk about really bad bosses. They were good in sales. They brought the numbers in, but they had no business grooming, promoting, mentoring, teaching. Um, it, it was horrifying the the way I was spoken to in the 80s um, by some of my sales managers. You know, when I think now it would not be tolerated, they'd be an HR issue. But at the time, you're a kid. What do you know? You just roll with it. But yeah, every every person, just because you're good at something doesn't mean you should lead. Um, and that that's why I think this conversation today is critical because I think the the landscape of leadership has changed, but at the core, yeah, kind of hasn't, right? Yeah, I, I, I think so. And I think we all know that a good leader, it unlocks massive potential within you and your freedom and autonomy to explore. You don't, don't get sort of you know, massively situational leadership in regard to being directed. You get coached and supported along the way. Unfortunately, and I've always found this, and I've had a, you know, a few sort of stints within uh, the sales orgs over the years as well, um, because of the results orientation, I'm very driven and passionate. Now, this is often a very short-term game, unless you were probably more within a family-oriented or a private business. But the short-term pressures within that, it often results in default styles that most people believe to get the best out of people, you have to be very pragmatic, very matter of fact, and very direct. And in situational leadership, you direct and tell as opposed to coach and develop. And it's a misnomer because you don't get the most out of people. Um, and it's a different style of approach when you suddenly walk away from that transactional element how do I do this at a leadership level? And as you say, it's not right for everyone. And you've got to give yourself a break if it's not right for you. Um, some people are great individual contributors. Other people thrive and enjoy on unlocking potential within others. Uh, so it's a nice balance needed. You said something real important. You said transactional, right? It's the same in sales. If you go in and you just do the transaction it, there's no depth to it, right? There's no relationship piece of it. It's just, I made the sale move on and I'm off to the next person where my career and the way I teach, right? With my clients now, it isn't transactional. Yeah, it is, right? They're buying from you in the moment, but it's really that long-term relationship that you're building that becomes a profitable two-way um, connection that you can refer to them. They can refer to you as well as supporting each other and growing. So it just, I love that word transactional. And I think that we need to look more into that relationship building, which translates over to leadership as well. So I have a question for you. I, I in, in the information that was sent, you put in your book, right? You put that you believe that exceptional leaders are those that are not always right. 
why, like, how did you land on that? I agree with it, but how did you land on that? Just so curious. Yeah. It took me a while to actually appreciate it. And I think within your earlier career, and let's put a sales bent on this for your audience, you believe that you need to be right. And it's something almost installed with you from an early age. That is what's actually required. But as you said, the results can be very transactional on that. So I used to be one of those individuals, Connie, that every debate, discussion, dialogue that I would have, there'd always have to be, in my mind, a winner and a loser. And the outcome would be transactional. And normally, uh, I'd do pretty good out of it. I was uh, <laughs> quite a, uh, as intellectual sparring and uh, I was okay at it. And I thought that was a good sort of uh, format in regard to ongoing development. But when you sit back and reflect it, I had three sort of key insights that came through. The first one, when you think you're always right, you limit your thought diversity and your openness and willingness to new ideas incredibly. Now, I'm an insanely curious person, but I was not actually opening my mindset to new possibilities. And I had a boss with an Asia-Pacific chapter in China, Samson Su, and he said, Hamish, your mind works like a parachute, best when open. And uh, it really sort of just hit the sort of thing that if you're always right, you're going to have a closed off mindset. So that was number one. The second one on that goes to what you were saying around the depth of relationships. In my experience, when you're always right, you will have one-off transactional relationships. Now, I started looking back and... Every one of my breakthrough results and transformational results came when I had a depth and a quality and, uh, of relationship that generally only happened after at least two or three interactions. So good leaders, and I started to after a while, measured my relationship variable ahead of a transactional number. Um, and they go hand in hand within that. But I found that incredibly important and I term it transactional versus transformational. And the last one was what we were talking around. I love unlocking talent. I just get a real buzz out of it. It's selfish, but uh, it's a bloody good feeling to actually get that. However, when you're right, nobody develops under you. They don't challenge you. They won't go into a debate or a dialogue with you. And why would they? Because they know they're going to lose. So those are those elements. So to me, good leaders... They're more than happy. They have an inner confidence that it's okay to be wrong. They show vulnerability, which goes to a next level of trust and relationship. Um, and in my case, I start to value the opinion of others before I value my own. And uh, you have a decision-making hierarchy at the end. So we see it numerous times, but uh, it's. Uh, I wish I had earned it a, a little bit earlier within my career. And I've probably, so the last 15 years as a CEO, I got to that position, I think. I think, well, isn't that wisdom, right? Isn't that part of the journey of wisdom that, and I see it and your kids are similar ages. They think they know everything. And sometimes like my husband and I, I look at them and I go, oh, how did I get to 60 without your insight? Like, cause I'm just, I'm the blithering, you know, idiot. That's the mother. So it's just funny. I think we're very egocentric. I think it's a natural progression that when we're younger, right, the world revolves around me. And then as we get older, we realize how much we don't know. I'll just share a really funny story. Um, when 2020 hit, uh, when COVID hit in 2020, all of my clients and everything I did, they were corporate clients. I did everything live. I traveled, right. I spoke live. I networked live and the world shut down. 
And I remember saying to my husband, yikes, I, I guess I have to come out of the dark ages and start to digitize my stuff. So I started networking online and Zoom and all these things. And I was working 12 hour days because I realized how much I didn't know, Hamish. And so I remember the first day um, I, I was part of a, a program. It was like a weekend thing of learning. And I came up for, for lunch. My husband likes, how is it? And I just looked at him and I said, you know, I've been in business 20 years. How did I survive? I don't know anything. <laughs> you know, it was that moment of I was so curious because there was so much I didn't know. It was a blind spot. I just never looked over there. So that I think comes with wisdom that you were saying you were more open in the past 15 years, because I think we start to reflect and think, I didn't know that. I didn't know that. And that's where the curiosity, the humbleness, um, I think that comes with age. I don't know. Yeah, I I think you are right. And insight and experience, and whether it's lived experience or even observation, Let's face it, it's incredibly, it's under-leveraged and it's probably undervalued, but it's incredibly important. My challenge that I've placed back on a lot of people now, how do you get to that insight and that experience at an earlier age? Yes. And there's a great quote of a, uh, he's an ex-all-black uh, rugby coach in New Zealand, Sir Steve Hansen, and he says, you don't need to lose to learn, but it sure helps. And I love that element. And what I'm saying to people, how do you get in early? How do you control your agenda? Um, fix things before they're broke. Learn insights before you have to learn. And there are models, and I've included them within sort of some of my sort of teaching and things around how do you document learnings? How do you look for context and insight earlier at this stage? Um, how do you track those things that you observe and they go against your core values in its own right. So there has to be almost a discipline at an early stage. And as soon as you do that, your suddenly your perspective opens up incredibly. Your best thing that I think you mentioned there, you opened your mindset and realized there's a real benefit of saying, I don't know, and I need to seek external perspective first. A lot of people talk external, outside-in perspective, very few people act on us. And it's funny because, you know, we had no income coming in. I had um, one child still in college. My husband lost his job, his company closed. Like we had no income coming in, Hamish. And you sit and you, what do I do? And I hired two coaches. <laughs> and they were a lot of money. And thank goodness we had money in the bank. But, you know, in retrospect, it was absolutely the right thing. Talk about scary moments. And and for my listeners, we have these crossroads and it's like, oh, do I do that? I know I need it, but it costs whatever it is. Um, What's the cost of not doing it is almost another perspective. I think, you know, when you start peeling back the onion that we have to look at, you use the word before, and I'm just curious, constant dissatisfaction Mm -hmm. and always wanting to stay ahead of the curve. What, what does constant dissatisfaction mean? I find that phraseology fascinating. Yeah. And I'm not saying it's a good, uh, I'm not saying it's a good condition. So I've been told there's two types of uh, um, dissatisfaction. There's healthy dissatisfaction. And then there's constants. Now, unfortunately, I have the constant side. And a healthy dissatisfaction is obviously you're looking for opportunities, possibilities. You don't have a limiting mindset um, and external perspectives, et cetera, where you view their opportunities. Now, the constant dissatisfaction, um, which I sort of have, and this goes back to wanting sort of new, different, exciting adventure, 
even when things are going well, I'm wanting to look at opportunities that can take them to the next stage. And the dangers against that is that it can be very demanding on your team around you. You can often move at a pace um, and a cadence that can leave people behind. You can, if you're not careful, and you need to surround yourself with good people if you have this, that you can walk away from some very strong core um, profit or revenue centers and try and chase new channels or new customers or opportunities. And we know within sales, that core is absolutely key. So that's how I look at it. And I've always had uh, Dr. Michael Watkins, who did the first 90 days book, he has a model that talks around four stages of business maturity and startup um, turnaround realignment, sustaining success. The sustaining success element, which is maintaining, um, maintenance to me, even the terminology of it, means decline. If you've got a mindset of maintenance, the pressure valve goes off people around you. You're not seeking out new opportunities. So I look at any business situation that I go into around that constant dissatisfaction and how you get ahead of the curve is key. And very quickly, the um, I was interviewed via, I think it was McKinsey or BCG a few years back, but at a CEO interview, and 90% of global CEOs said they were nervous around a business model change that would disrupt their business in the next three to five years. However, they only invested 10% of resources to get ahead of that. Now, talk around wanting to get ahead of the curve. So individually, like you, what were those capabilities that you needed in times of difficulty that you knew you would need within three to five years' time. So what do you do? You invest in regard to coaches to bring that out within you. So getting ahead of the curve, setting your own agenda, uh, in my mind, is incredibly important. But it can be demanding <laughs> with, uh, with your team around you. It's interesting because it's true when, when you're dissatisfied, like you said, and you're constantly chasing and moving and you have people who just my communication style, right? They, they like to get into the weeds and perfect and reiterate and cross all the T's. And you're like, keep up with me, keep up with me. Um, the problem is you create the angst around you, right? You create a wake of, of stress. And I, I think what happens is they just shut down a little bit that they're afraid to come forward and share because they constantly feel like they're slowing us down if we're moving too fast. So this leadership thing, you know, the way you described it, it's really a balancing act of your own kind of innate style and really taking into account the team around you so that we can hit that curve and maximize, maximize time and profit. I write time and time is money as well. So how do we maximize that time and profit by getting everybody on the same page? It, it's interesting because like people can't keep up with me, Hamish. And I'm like, Oh, for God's sake, like, do I have to go over this again? But yes, I do because I need them to make sure that what I'm bringing to market is correct and plausible and all they, they have, they have insights that I just can't have because I'm moving a little faster than them. Right. So That's, it's, yeah. yeah. The self-awareness side on that is, is key. Um, the self-development is critical on that. So as a leader, I used to get very frustrated and think, come on, where's the pace, where's the boldness, the risk-taking? Um, and I was told very early on that, that in this concept of psychological safety, you need to embrace to those people below you that failure is okay. And everyone talks around, let's embrace failure. But to do that, 
One, you can't direct your people. You can't get them to do it your way. You have to actually accept less perfection. And when there are mistakes and failures along the way, because you're moving with such pace and demanding, you need to really, the only element you want to get out of them is what's the insight and what's the learning. And you celebrate that as the result of that transaction that comes through. And the only other thing I'd say, Connie, is that we've talked sort of, and I heard within your introduction around bad bosses. Yes. Um, yes. It's amazing the over the years I've looked at, and unfortunately I've been in good companies, but obviously I've had a couple of bad bosses. You learn often because of a negativity bias more around what to do and what not to do than what to do with the bad boss. So normally when you have a bad boss, you try and run away. You get another promotion if you can. You look for an outside job, and we know that through a lot of research. You leave your job, not because of the job. You leave it because of the line manager. However, a bad boss, when you look at their values, behaviors, actions, you can ingrain that and, again, document what are those things that resonate directly against my leadership style, my desire, and you vow never to repeat those. So uh, I've actually found uh, bad bosses, the context behind them and the grillings and the surfs that are telling us, there's always an insight that comes through it. Even though it's hard to hear, um, it can actually be incredibly powerful if you seek out that uh, those insights in the first place. Yeah, it's interesting. Every time I've had a bad boss, you know, I reached a point and I would I would say to my husband at the time or or what are my parents, you know, when I was younger, I'm not growing. They they don't care about me. It's every time I go and say, hey, I'm having trouble with this. What would be your recommendation? You know, while you're still learning and they would say things like, yeah, I got enough on my plate. I can't worry about you. Go figure it out. And it's like, okay. And I remember whoever was in my orbit, you know, my family, whoever I was living, and I would say, it's time for me to look for another job because if I'm not growing and they don't have an interest, I'm I'm asking for help, right? I'm being very verbal here and they're kind of squashing me. It's time to move on. And and I know there's, I think the Gallup poll from 2018 um, here in the United States, it was 70% of Americans hate their job because of their bosses, but they stay because of the financial, they have mortgages and and kids in college or rent or car payments. So they stay in that job because they feel a little trapped. And that was, I I think because of maybe how I was raised, that was never my mindset. My mind's, I never left a job without having another job. I wasn't crazy, but it was like, "Mm, I've run my course. I, I need to get out of here. So it's just interesting how people approach things, but I've learned more from my bad bosses than the one good boss I had. I agree with that 100%. We've probably ingrained within you now, any people that you lead over the years, you will know the importance of development and you will over commit in regard to that unlocking the potential within others. So it's uh, they can be invaluable lessons, hard lessons uh, at the same time. Hey, and just whilst I remember the, when talking around that constant dissatisfaction, yes. one thing I've always found great in regard to a sales environment You can't do this right across your whole portfolio, but I always stretch my teams and I have a concept called the 30% rule. And this is setting a stretch objective that pushes people out of their comfort zone, but the only way they can achieve it is to do something completely different from their current ways of working and methodologies. 
And that forces them perspective, new ways of uh, learning, forces risk, forces collaboration, relationship builds. You can't do it on the main parts of your business because it's too dangerous within that. So if you're as a leader wanting that pace agility, pace setting, et cetera, um, it's a great tactic just on one part of your portfolio. And when you provide that ammunition, that one part of your portfolio suddenly opens up possibilities with insights yeah, it comes almost a little bit of a norm. And that's when these limiting mindsets of people is a no, can't be done. And historically, if you've been successful in the past, it's even harder to change because you think you know that uh, you've done something very well in the past as well. Um, but it, uh, in my experience, it works a treat, keeps people like myself energized and pace, et cetera, but it doesn't disrupt too much the wider team. And and see, that's the other thing, too. I think we become bored quickly um, when it when whatever the job is becomes very routine. So if you can have something kind of on the on the side that's not going to impact right your, your revenue producer, but that you can grow that skill and add to or create another whole revenue stream. Right. But it's, I, I think that energy becomes really impactful within any organization because people are interested. They're curious, they're energized, they're coming, they're showing up with more, right. To give you more um, from an organizational mm-hmm. perspective. Right. Agree, agree entirely. And I term it almost muscle memory, and it just expands within that. And those are the people you want within your team. They radiate energy right throughout, um, and it shows what is possible. Yeah. And and the thing is, you could say, like, I would say to you, if you said, Khan, I really want you to do whatever, right? If, If we work together and you were my boss. And I'd say, uh, okay, I'm a, and I would say this, I'm a little nervous and ah, can I do that, right? Because our own limiting, I, I don't think I could do that. The leader would say, I know you can, you don't know you can yet, but I'm telling you, we're going to put pieces in place for you to have many successes for you to develop this skill. And trust me, a year from now, our conversation is going to be real different. But sometimes when we have the confidence for the employee, they don't know they could do it yet, but we know the capability of the individual. It's fascinating when they start to believe in themselves because you believed in them first, you know? Yeah, definitely. And I've, uh, I have a hiring philosophy I've followed probably for only a dozen years now. And it's, it's C plus W is greater than E. Curiosity and willingness, and willingness I've got with passion, is greater than experience. Yeah. And it's not always the case because I've written a chapter on experience, so I have to sort of balance that. But when you get somebody who's incredibly curious with a possibility mindset and they're willing and passionate to learn, they can overcome new areas. When you do set a challenge that is so out of their comfort zone, so out of their functional or technical knowledge, it actually expands and opens that that mindset. And people always talk around that very simple model of um, comfort zone, stretch zone, and panic zone. And they say you should take people from comfort just into a little bit of stretch, but never into panic. My experience is if you're a good, effective leader and you're providing that psychological safety and embracing failure and celebrating the insights that come with failure, it's not a bad thing every now and then to get people to go within panic because it opens that comfort level up just to a whole new area. But if you're a leader who demands it's done your way, total perfection, won't accept anything as opposed to a tangible number outcome, um, you will not get that person to expand or take risks or develop uh, whatsoever. 
you know, mindset shifts, it's, it's tough. And our experiences validate sometimes that bad behavior, right? Of do it my way. I don't want to hear any other way, perhaps. Um, it's, it's, it's like locked inside of us. So mindset shifts, I know we talk so much about it, but I think in corporate, those mindset shifts are becoming even more and more important and more and more impactful to the bottom line, right? Because it's, it's always about the bottom line, but how can we get to the bottom line? For me, it's always faster, easier, and, and make more money today, right? Not Let's not say, let's do all of these things. Yes, sometimes you do have to do planning, but how can we start that, that process ASAP and do it with as little angst as possible, if possible, right? It, we're almost out of time, Amy Hamish, but I have one more real quick question for you. I know in the book, you have relationship ahead of law and logic. I am so curious what you mean by that? I've seen over the years so many incredibly gifted people who are academics, technically and functionally brilliant, um, econometric sort of modeling that just sort of blows you sort of away, your sales heads who are just incredible in regard to their uh, portfolio analysis and customer sort of breakdowns. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, their brilliance, um, it is incredibly limited because they believe that they can do this as a sole individual contributor. Um, and it's that old African proverb, you can go very fast alone, but you won't go far. And it is so true. And so many times I've seen wonderful innovations, creativity, ideas and concepts. But unless you've got a networking ability and the ability to integrate and connect people with you, based on relationships, based on true depth of trust, and in my view, being liked as a colleague or as a leader, as well as being respected, it falls short of that opportunity. So I've always, uh, and it's quite interesting, uh, majority within sales in particular, it's around functional and technical training. Very seldom is it around leadership and relationship variables and training. You learn how to be a good negotiator within sales, but you don't learn enough in regard to how to be a relationship-driven people, person. And going back, that's what creates that depth of trust and understanding and relationship that, in my experience, definitely leads to breakthrough. But there is, there's models and everything you have to follow, but it's a discipline, um, but it doesn't happen enough. And of all the functions that I've led, sales is probably the most guilty because they are very transactional-driven. Um, saying that, they're still... <laughs> probably my favorite department because they're operational, uh, but it is that balance. Yeah. And it's funny because sales, right? When I deal with my organizations and I deal with the sales department and the analytics and everything, and I, I teach coaching and I, and they talk about the numbers and I say, listen, we have to measure. I get it. Numbers are important. But when you coach the individual that's struggling or that, you know, they have more, right? They can, their numbers can be amplified. When you start talking about a number, I can't manage a number. I have to manage a behavior. And if I can have them to learn to get better on the phone, um, to present more clearly, to ask better questions, whatever it is in the sales process, as soon as I can figure out that the deficit or the glitch they're having with the behavior and we turn that on and amplify it, right? Turn up the volume on it. 
the numbers come. So why are you over here managing a number when you're dealing with the human brain and you're asking them to do something differently, make it tangible for them so that they at least know what the next step is. So we get stuck in that, um, the numbers game versus the human game, um, because we all want to see the numbers, right? We, it's a measurable thing. It's a tangible thing where behaviors, it's like putting your hand around jello. It's a much harder thing to do. So Agree entirely. Very simple tip for that. You, when setting your objectives, set leading and lagging indicators. So a lagging indicator is obviously the number. The leading indicators celebrate and measure people based on their behaviours and actions and uh, learnings along the way. Um, and that's where you get a nice balance. And uh, you get the short-term wins. You don't have to wait to the end of the year to see if you're successful. Um, am I better as a presenter? Am I better on that phone? Is my depth and quality and trust of relationship grown to another level? Yeah, it's all about the relationship with self, with team, with client. Um, it's all about the relationship. Roosevelt, I, I live my life by this uh, quote, and I'm going to get it off. I'm not perfect, but I think it was uh, Roosevelt. He said that as the tides as the tides rise, so do the ships. Right, that we all can work together and rise and lift each other up. I believe that that we we need other people because I'm not the smartest person in the room, and I'm okay with that. You know, <laughs> agree entirely. Yeah. Thank you so much. So can everybody get your book on the website, which I'll share in a minute, but is the book there? Is there a separate link for the book? I forgot no, to ask. Uh, direct within the website. Uh, there's access within that and obviously Amazon, et cetera, as well. Perfect. So website is Hamish R. Thompson, no P. Dot com. And if you have a question uh, for Hamish, please go to Hamish at HamishRThompson.com. No worries. I will put that info in the show notes so that you guys can find um, Hamish, his book and um, buy it, read it. And, you know, here's the thing. If you're in sales, you're in leadership, doesn't matter. Um, this is an important book, I think. And with the summer being here, it's a good time to I sit on the beach and I read a book. So I'm happy with that. But again, buy the book, go to the website. It's not always right to be right. And I, by the way, I just love that quote. I, I love that title. How did you pick that? Because I just love it. I think it was my wife actually, is, uh, particularly within COVID uh, last few years, I've been told that more by the kids and my wife as opposed to at a corporate sense. So uh, it's, a, it's a hard learning, but it's a necessary one. <laughs> Behind every good man, there's a good woman. I love your wife. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely to connect, Connie. Yeah, same. Uh, thanks again, Hamish. Uh, thank you so much uh, for being on and just sharing really good concepts, but also the application, right? Information is a beautiful thing. If we do nothing with it, it's information. So you gave some really nice tips and ideas on how to strategize and put these things in place and or how to shift our own mindset. So thank you so much for that. Very tangible uh, ideas for people to execute immediately after listening to the show, which I think is important. Thank you. Yeah, a pleasure. And I hope you will join me weekly as we question, build, and discover, no matter where you are in your business, your sales career, your career. I hope my guests and I do provide that information, ideas, tips, strategies, or just have you shine a light on something you didn't realize or you knew, but you forgot. So again, it's just all about learning and growing and taking the information, applying it. The application is where the magic happens, and that's where the results happen. So thank you for 
joining us. You've been listening to Changing the Sales Game on webtalkradio.net with me, your host, Connie Whitman. Um, again, thank you for joining me every week. I'm honored that you're on this journey with me and, and do something different. I, I love how Hamish said, challenge, go into a little bit of panic and see where you land and, and magic might happen in your life and in your business. Thanks everybody for tuning in. Thanks Hamish for being a great guest. I'll see you all next week. Have a good one. Be sure to subscribe so that you don't miss a single episode. And while you're at it, please leave a rating and review and share it with your friends. Tune in every week for more exciting insights and strategies on increasing your business's ROI. And always remember, lead with heart and your sales will follow. Follow.